This is Sending Signals, a show about music and creativity. I'm your host, Matt Royal. Welcome to the show. Our guests this episode? Moody Blues bassist John Lodge. And an actor who has worked with Dick Van Dyke, Doris Day, and most famously played Corporal Max Klinger on the TV show MASH. Jamie Farr is in the house. Not literally, of course. He was in his house. I was in mine. Or my rented flat. Let's get on with it. The Moody Blues were technically formed in 1964, reaching number one in the UK in January 65 with their cover of the song Go Now, which was originally recorded by Bessie Banks. Go Now featured Denny Lane on vocals, who would later join Wings, the band the Beatles could have been, as Alan Partridge would say. The band started to collapse with Denny leaving, among other issues, but in November 66, the Moody Blues reformed with the arrival of Justin Hayward and today's first guest, bassist John Lodge. The resulting album, Days of Future Past, was released in November 67 and was a strange part classical, part rock song cycle that followed the concept of a single day, beginning with The Day Begins, taking us through Tuesday afternoon and ending, of course, with Nights in White Satin. In the five-year period between November 67 and November 72, they would release seven albums, dropping the orchestra after the first one. These albums somehow don't seem to have attained the status that classic Yes, King Crimson, Genesis records have, which is strange because they're often compelling, moving, weird and beautiful albums which seem to take you on a journey. They were a band in search of answers. Answers being sought through science, religion, music, looking inwards and outwards, wondering why we're here and what it all means. Sometimes that journey takes you back to the start. April 69's On the Threshold of a Dream ends with the same mysterious sound that begins the album. Probably my favourite of these albums is November 69's To Our Children's Children's Children, which was inspired by the recent moon landing. The album was eventually actually played in space by the crew of Apollo 15 in 1971. It was great to speak to John to find out how an album like this gets put together. We also talked about their association with infamous counterculture figure Timothy Leary, known for his strong advocacy of LSD, who they immortalised in the song Legend of a Mind. I wondered if they later had any regrets about this, given the damage Acid did to some of their contemporaries like Sid Barrett and Brian Wilson. The Moody Blues have shifted 70 million albums worldwide, and as if that wasn't enough, they remain the only band I can think of that managed to use the word ovulation in a song chorus. John has a new single out, These Crazy Times, Isolation Mix, which of course was made during a recent lockdown. We also talk about the current status of the Moody Blues. As recently as 2018, Justin, John and original drummer Graham Edge were still playing together, the year they were also inducted into a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The things seem to have gone quiet. Enjoy. As things 
Uh, yeah, not too bad. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Good. Good. Have you been doing interviews all day? Have you just started? No, just started, yeah. It's 11 o'clock here. Oh, okay. <laughs> Rock and roll early morning. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm in England, so it's four o'clock here. So. Yeah, I know. What's the weather like? Okay, where are you in England? Uh, I'm in the southeast, uh, South End on Sea. Oh, oh, wonderful. I like that. Well, you wouldn't know it. The Moody Blues never come here. <laughs> I, I used to go there. I used to go there in, in the early days. and uh, We used to fly. Actually, we used to fly out miles before your time. They used to fly out of South End on Sea. Right. Uh, with the car and the equipment. Can you believe that? <laughs> when we were touring in Europe, we'd drive to South End, get on a plane with the equipment and the car and the van. Yeah. And fly across to uh, northern France and then get up with the tour. Right. Wow. So you have a new single called These Crazy Times. Yeah. You said um, in the press release that you noticed a parallel between recording Days of Future Past in 67 and sort of a situation we're in now yeah can you sort of explain that <laughs> well you know when when you know in, in those times of days of future past yeah when you went into the studio you were normally just doing three hour sessions you'd have 10 till one two till five and six till ten that's how it worked so you would do all your preparation at home or wherever or in a rehearsal room, whatever. But when we did Days of Future Past, we asked if we could have the studio 24 hours a day locked down. Yeah. And uh, it meant that we could be recording at 4 o'clock in the morning, or I could be in the studio on my own at 4 o'clock in the morning. Right. Uh, dead quiet and everything else. So it was just an incredible period of time to sort of find out who you were musically because you know when when you are on your own doing nothing except playing your guitar or playing bass or trying to create a song you need total uh, sort of lateral thinking you need to be have no nothing coming in to disturb your uh, train of thought you know and the create hopefully, hopefully the creativity and we recorded the holidays of future past in that one week right that way and it just reminded me, sitting here on my own, no one else around, just a couple of guitars and my bass. And uh, it, it made a quick reflection because I haven't been in that position since. Uh, because after Days of Future Past, it became sort of a bit of a mega, mega effort in the studio. You'd have road guys, you'd have technicians, you'd have engineers. And it was never the same again. It was never sort of one-on-one, -on -one, you know, me and my bass or me and my guitar uh, or me and one of the other guys in the band, you know. So it was never the same. And uh, it just made me reflect that it was a very similar period of time. Yeah. And then you decided to sort of involve your family in the project as well for the single. Yeah, well, I was, I was um, you know, I, I'd recorded the song, I'd, you know, got on my computer, my um, keyboard and you know, microphone and everything. And uh, I, I've recorded the song and, and I was thinking, how on earth can I do this? Because I can't go into a studio. How can I put the vocals on? You know, where am I going to do this? And uh, I thought I can't really sit with the guitarist and, sh and show him what I want. Yeah. And I thought, now, who's going to do the backing vocals? And then I said to my wife, because she 
she sings all the while. You know, she's got great pitch, but she's never, ever recorded, never, ever done anything like it. And my studio here is a very small studio. Um, and to be honest, my sound booth is just a microphone with a sound casing around it, but it's in a wardrobe, it's in a cupboard. All the other sounds away, so you have to open the cupboard door, go inside, close it, and uh, you know it's it, it's actually a great sound room. I couldn't believe it worked. And uh, I said to my wife, "Listen, I've recorded a song. This is what I would like you to sing." And uh, she sang it twice. That's all. And I recorded it, and that was it. Done. I couldn't believe it. And I said, "All these years I've been having backing singers, and you could have done it all." <laughs> And then my son plays guitar, but it's not uh, what he does for a living is in marketing. Uh, but he loves music. And I said to him, come on, that's it now. You've got to go and uh, put the guitar on this song. And so I said it to him, um, you know, on, on Dropbox. And he was in his house and he recorded the guitar. Yeah. And so that was done. And then John Davison is a friend of mine. Last year we went on the, uh, I was on the Royal Affair tour with Yes across America. Mm-hmm. And I said to John, would you do the backing vocals with for me, you know? So I sent him the files on Dropbox. He put the uh, the backing vocals, you know, he did backing vocals for me. It all came back to me. And then I rang my sound engineer and said, because he's got a studio, I said, can you mix this? And so he went and mixed it, and there we have it. You know, in these crazy times, more than more than one meaning, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's great that you've still found a way to be creative despite the circumstances. You said in the press release that um, I hope you can relate to this song as another step in life's strange and mysterious path. And I was thinking about how great the Moody Blues were at creating this sense of being on a journey. You know, the early albums had this sense of we're setting off on an adventure together to try and find answers. Is that how you saw it? I I did, yeah, because, um, you know, I wrote a song called House of Four Doors and uh, the whole idea of that song is that when you open a door, you never know what you're going to find the other side. And life's like that because um, you're going along uh, in your own happy way and then something uh, comes along and just changes everything for you. Uh, but this one, this you know, the the the, uh, the coronavirus didn't just change my life; it's changed everyone's life in the world. And who could have thought that something like that could affect like what, what four billion people or whatever uh, in a way that's changed their lives completely? And I think lives will have been changed. After this, you know, we never. There's never going to be a normal that was before the pan, you know, before the virus. We're going to all have to change in a way. It's unprecedented, yeah. Yeah. Can I ask how it? How did it work in the Moody Blues having five writers in a band? Was it was it competitive or was it just great and like kind of a way of keeping the, the standard of, of the records up? Yeah, what happened with the Moody's, which is for me was brilliant. We're all different people. Yeah, and and so when we approach the subject, we approach it differently. You know, like Ray Thomas, late Ray Thomas, who, who was on flute, he couldn't play uh, an instrument with chords, so he had no idea about chord structures. But he had wonderful melody, mm. and so he'd come up with a melody. So we would, 
uh, <clears throat> put the chord structure to the melody. So that was a different way of, of, uh, that I would write. I would write either off my bass or off my guitar. And coming from Birmingham, I was heavy uh, influenced by heavy engineering, you know, and really, to be honest, rock and roll. That's the thing that really got me really interested in music was rock and roll. So I came from the, the more energy side, and I think because I play bass, that's what bass players do, you know, hopefully they create the energy. Uh, so I would write a song from that point of view. Uh, Mike Pinder played keyboards, so he wrote uh, from that point of view, you know, from keyboard, from how you work a song on a piano. And Justin really was uh, from the West Country, from Swindon, and he uh, wrote things really on acoustic guitar. So he wrote from a different place altogether, and his influences uh, were really acoustic-led. So we had a, a huge sort of rainbow effect of how we could write an album. And so when we came to discuss an album, whether it was In Search of the Lost Chord or To Our Children's Children or Seventh Sojourn, we all know which part of the album we were going to take. And it was wonderful having Graham Edge, our drummer, because he's a, he's a great poet. And so we'd just say to him at the end of the album, Graham, write some li lyrics that would hold all this together. And that's what he did. Wow. So on an album, say, like, To Our Children's Children's Children, which was inspired by the moon landings, did you sort of discuss the concepts you wanted to explore and then kind of a portion off for writing? Is that what you're saying? Is that how you Exactly. Yeah, we discussed it, you know. And how we, how we talked about the, uh, the moon landing one was we thought, OK, if we were the astronauts going off, flying off to the moon, what would we be thinking individually, not collectively, but what? how would we approach that individually? You know, what would our emotion be? What would we be thinking? And that's how we approach that. And uh, so we all came up with different ideas of what we would, how we would see, you know. And um, another interesting thing on that one, we wanted a rocket ship. And we were very close to NASA at the time. You know, we had great relationship with NASA. And that's about the flu, a lot of our music on the space shuttles. Huh. But uh, we asked them for a, a rocket taking off. And they sent us one. And it was like a damp squid. It was <laughs> rubbish, absolute rubbish. Uh, and so we made our own rocket. Uh, we actually dropped a piano off the top of a building and recorded it when it hit the ground. And then we added some other sounds, and it sounded like a great rocket taking off. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, did many songs get re rejected? Were there ideas that the band would sort of democratically vote down as not being up to standard, or was generally sort of everything used? You know, if you're writing two songs or three songs for the album, you are pretty sure it's the song you want to record. And the rest of the guys, you know, had respect for one another you know if if justin came up with a song or mike or ray uh, and that's what they believed in that's what we would do you know it would never be questioned we would just say okay this is what i'm going to do to that song and you put your own creativity into that song um you know when you wrote a song and and you to sit around a table and we'd 
the person who's written the song would sing the song either to a guitar or bass or a tambourine even sometimes. And then we'd say, okay, it's not their song anymore. It's now a Moody Blues song. What are we going to do to make it exactly how we would love it to be recorded? And that's what we do. We'd sit around the table and discuss, oh, what if we do this? What if we do that? And then we'd build it up first, try and paint a picture of the song and then record it. Was there ever any um, sort of reevaluation or regrets, probably the wrong word, but of the sort of promotion of Timothy Leary, given kind of what happened to some of your contemporaries like Brian Wilson or Sid Barrett? I know you've been playing Legend of a Mind live again. Did you ever sort of reevaluate your, your view on that kind of scene? Well, not really, because when we went to uh, America uh, first, Ray had written the song Legend of a Mind, you know, Timothy Leary's dead, no, no. Uh, and we'd never, never really knew who he was, you know. Obviously, we'd read about everything in the uh, newspapers of the west coast of America. But when we got to America, the, the first one of the first people we actually came to us at the concerts was Timothy Leary. And he came to the concerts and we spent a lot of time with him. Uh, and over the years, he came up on stage with us and... Uh, you know, he actually played tambourine some nights on stage with us. Uh, but no, um, when he was actually, uh, you know, just before he died, we actually spoke to him. We called him up uh, and, you know, spoke to him. And, and he said, do you know, you guys, you guys made me more famous than I was. <laughs> but uh, no, I don't reevaluate. Re you know, it's, it's a period of time. And, uh, you know, I worked with Brian Wilson a few times uh, and, and the Beach Boys a lot. Uh, but it was, a, it was a period of time, you know, and uh, I think, you know, in the 60s, a lot of people were looking everywhere for answers to everything, you know. Yeah, so I guess you just slot it into, like, ex an experiential thing that, 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 that happened. That's where you were at that point, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, as well, you know, it's a shame now we can't have debates about anything. Uh, but, you know, I debated him, you know. Uh, you know, I, I questioned his whole philosophy. I said, uh, you know, basically, what have you got that, 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 that I really want, you know? And, uh, you know, he said what he thought, and I said what I thought. Uh, it doesn't mean to say you don't like each other or you can have a conversation or you... You know, you can avoid each other, you know. But I think in life you don't have to agree with everyone. You know, you don't. Mm -hmm. uh, it'd be nice to be able to have, have, have opposite points of view but still remain really good friends, you know. It's interesting um, with those, particularly with those early records, for sort of the amount of different instruments and sonic experimentation going on. But when you hear sort of live recordings, say Isle of Wight or that Albert Hall record, the Beatles had given up playing live as their records got more expansive because it was, you know, <laughs> for various reasons. But you didn't have that luxury, but nor did you have sort of the extra musicians on stage to try and recreate it. So the live performances, I mean, I wasn't born yet, but like from what I can tell on record, just seemed so kind of raw and kind of different to, to the albums. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But we used to spend a lot of time trying to work out how we could get uh, the song to work on stage live, and how you how you do it. You know, uh, I think when we did the Isle of Wight, we opened with a slow song. You know, nobody could believe that you'd go on stage at the <laughs> Isle of Wight 
400,000 people and over, over with a slow song. But uh, we did that. But what we used to do, we'd go into the reels and we'd say, okay, on those songs, what is the part of the song that sticks out? What, what, what is the part that people um, can relate to, you know, in that particular song? And then we try and emphasize that more than anything else that's, that um, uh, we played on stage. And it worked, you know, because we had the mellotron uh, and flute and, and the harmonies. And, uh, you know, the, the mood is, I have to say it myself, we ended up being a really good uh, live band. It was just incredible because we, it, it's a strange thing to say, but we, we sort of dotted the I's and crossed the T's. Uh, but also we said, you know, if it comes to a point in a song where it needs to be dead quiet, we've got to make sure you could hear pin drop on stage because that means when you build it up, it's going to be even bigger emotionally, you know. Mm. Uh, you, you can't just come on and just give it 100 decibels from, you know, from the beginning of the song to the end. Uh, that, that was not never what we wanted to do. Yeah. Can I ask, are the Moody Blues over? Well, I don't really know, really. It's... Um, we did the, the Days of Future Past tour, which ended in, uh, when was that? Uh, 2018. And um, uh, we haven't worked together since then. I don't really know about that. I really don't know. Uh, I'm a moody blue, always will be a moody blue, you know, and if uh, we get back on the road, uh, it'll be great. Uh, I, I think it's, what's, what was it really interesting for, for me in the moody blues is it was great to record an album and go and share that music with an audience. That was, to me, the most important thing. And, you know, the record company just doesn't seem to have the energy anymore, you know, for uh, artists like the Moody Blues, or anybody, I don't think, to be honest. Huh. Uh, unless it's on Spotify from day one, you, you're not going anywhere. And uh, But you need to have people in a record company that really... They're excited by your music. And if you can find that person who's a real music man, then you can get in the studios as the Moody Blues and record an album. But uh, you can't keep going on the road and playing the same songs. You can do, and I enjoy playing all of them, but also being creative, like my new song, you know, in these crazy times, I want to play that on stage. You know, so if we'd had a record company, I'd have recorded that with the Moody Blues. It's as simple as that. Is it difficult as as you get older? Do you, was it was there a point in time where you felt like it was difficult competing with your younger self as a writer? I, I don't know. I have a I have a love of music, and I I'm not too sure whether what I'm writing now equates to when I was younger. I have no idea. Uh, but I just enjoy writing. I enjoy being creative. And um, so I've got quite a few projects at the moment I've been doing, especially in this lockdown period. Mm. Uh, but I don't know, you know, it's it's really strange because it, it feels like in the first three or four years of you being a creative artist, you seem to be the same person now. <laughs> I know it's a strange thing to say, but it seems to be the same person. I don't, you know... A lot more years have gone, a lot more water has gone under the bridge, but you seem to be the same person. Yeah. 
listen, I'll let you refresh yourself for your next interview, but I just want to say it's been really nice to talk to you. My, my granddad was a fan and my dad's a big fan. And as a kid, I had the, um, as a young kid, I had the Voices in the Sky compilation, which was um, a really odd compilation because it kind of mixed up some of the sort of 80s stuff with the 60s stuff. And it was very, it had this kind of plain blue cover and everything was kind of really out of context. And it was kind of missing a lot of. It didn't really have any of the sort of sp- much of it in terms of like the spoken interludes and things. Yeah. And so um, as I got on, discovered what the original albums were like with the kind of stunning artwork and like the intro to "Ride My Seesaw" as it should have been and whatever. And just in hindsight, that compilation was was a really odd one. It's um, it's not as good as the um, like this is the Moody Blues compilation. But, uh, uh, yeah. This is the Moody Blues. This is the Moody Blues. Is is. Uh... Yeah, that, that was a good compilation. It just, uh, yeah, I enjoyed that. Yeah. Well, it's been lovely to talk to you, John. I really appreciate your time, mate. Well, thank you very much indeed. Stay safe. You too, mate. Uh, look after yourself. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, John. I wonder if the Moody's need to think outside the box a bit in terms of making an album. If the big record companies aren't interested, how about working with a passionate indie label? or using a considerable fan base to crowdfund an album. I'd also love to hear them work with a contemporary producer who could get the best out of them and push them. Someone like Dave Friedman or Kevin Parker. It'd be amazing to continue the journey a bit longer. Next, hear my chat with actor Jamie Farr. Jamie's led a fascinating life. He was 85 years old at the time of the recording and on excellent form. He's perhaps best known for playing Corporal Klinger on M.A.S.H., I was hoping to understand the challenges of being somewhat defined by 11 years of work you did decades ago. But Jamie seems incredibly content. Enjoy. Hello. Hello there. Is that Jamie? Yes, is this Matt? It is. Well, very good. You sound sound very much like one of my Australian friends here that lives in my area. His name is Geoffrey. Geoffrey. Okay. I'm, um, I'm in England. I'm in the southeast of England. How are you, mate? Well, I'm good. Uh, you, uh, were you from Australia? Because that's what he always says, mate. <laughs> I'm not. No, I'm. I've. I, I grew up in the southeast of England. So. Um, oh, okay. Well, I worked with a lot of English actors. Uh, uh, are we doing the podcast now? Yeah. Why not? <laughs> oh, okay. Go ahead. Start. I'll tell you who I worked with. They. They were wonderful. Wonderful people. Have you ever been to England? Yes. Yeah, I'll even tell you that. Uh, uh, yes, we were there uh, with our children uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, we were still doing MASH at the time, and I had done some dinner theater, and I'd done such uh, great business that the gentleman that owned the theater also owned a travel agency, and he gave me for, uh, four first-class round-trip tickets from the United States to uh, Europe and back, of course, and uh, uh, it was absolutely wonderful. We went to London, we went to Paris, we went to Scotland. It was terrific. Yeah. We stayed at the Savoy uh, in London, we stayed at the Ritz in Paris, and uh, we were at Inverness in, uh, in Scotland. Oh, okay. Oh, that's great. Um, are you coping all right at the moment with the um, pandemic? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, we're, we're, we're fine. Of course, you know, we 
everybody has to do the right thing. And uh, uh, for a while there, uh, our salons uh, in uh, in California were closed, and I, I had this long hair. <laughs> I was going to have to get the London Symphony Orchestra and a baton, you know, I, either that or uh, or uh, have a dog <laughs> show or something. But yeah, finally they opened, and and uh, I went in and uh, got a haircut. You had to wear the mask, and I actually the uh, the lady barber uh, was like a sculptress. She the way she had to cut around my ears because I had the mask on. Yeah. Were you affected by the fires a couple of years back as well? Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, yesterday uh, I had uh, a gentleman coming in. He, uh, he's with the fire department, and uh, we, uh, we were going to buy a, a pump that uh, you can connect to your swimming pool and then use the water from the pool to fight the fire. Yeah. And so uh, they showed me uh, one, and I said, okay, let's get that, and they're going to deliver it next, uh, next week. But, yeah, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, actually I was shooting the uh, TV series Cool Kids when the fire broke out, and uh, I came home, and we had to evacuate. And uh, the next day when I went into work, we had stayed at somebody's house, I worked all day and then came back, uh, and we couldn't get back into our house for about five days. Fortunately, we had a generator, so we didn't lose any food in the house. Yeah. Oh, it must have been terrifying. Oh, it was. Well, we've been in this canyon area for about 47 years, and uh, we've been through a couple of fires. Uh, some of them, actually, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't home. I was on the road doing a show or something, and my wife and children had to evacuate. But uh, this past one... It, that was a uh, that was a bad, we lost thirty eight homes in the canyon area where I live. Yeah, are any of your children still at home? Are they, uh... I did, yeah, we have one of them that uh, has uh, moved back in. We have uh, our son who uh, is married, and we have one grandson. They live in the Burbank area, Burbank, California. Yeah. And our daughter uh, came back in. She uh, she has to have uh, some surgery, so uh, she's here at the house. And and actually, uh, uh, she has to go in to take the COVID uh, test, and then uh, we're going to be, my wife and I and, and our daughter will be quarantined in our house for four days before she has the surgery. So right. <laughs> it's going out uh, early today uh, to the grocery store to make sure we have enough uh, food in the house. Yeah, strange times, eh? Yeah, yeah, it is. But you know what? Hey, listen, you're, uh, you're, uh, you're from England. Uh, you've gone through some pretty tough times. <laughs> <laughs> And so, so have we. I, I've been around a long time. I've been through, uh, you know, World War II and the Korean War, the Vietnam War, all kinds of uh, all kinds of uh, problems. And uh, we're we're tough people, yeah. especially the British. You're 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 that British bulldog, buddy. <laughs> so listen, um, let's talk about acting. I'm I'm fascinated by the role of an actor because often. You're reciting words that have been written for you and you're serving the vision of a director and you're being told what to wear. And I wondered how you go about um, inhabiting a character so you feel like you're doing something creative. Is that difficult? Uh, Not if you have uh, good writing and uh, a good director. Uh, I I studied at the Pasadena Playhouse I came right out of high school in 1952 and attended the Pasadena Playhouse, and I had a great English uh, Shakespearean teacher. As a matter of fact, he was from England. His name was Jack Lynn, 
and uh, he uh, he taught us, uh, you know, all the things that were very important. He said, you have to understand about Shakespeare, uh, that's just his words in his time. So uh, that's actually what this means today, and he would explain it to us. And he was a wonderful, wonderful instructor. And, of course, uh, when you're uh, a student at the Playhouse, you played various roles, you know, parts that you certainly probably would not play in a movie or a TV show or even uh, in, in, the, uh, in live theater, but because they wanted you to experience it. So I got a lot of experience uh, doing that. I did, uh, we did Greek tragedies, we did Shakespeare, we did contemporary plays. Uh, and, and it was very exciting for all of us. And, of course, we were very young. I was like 19 years old. And actually, while I was at the uh, Playhouse there, I got discovered by a uh, talent agent from uh, metro golden Mayor, and they were uh, screen testing for the movie Blackboard Jungle, yeah. uh, which uh, starred Glenn Ford, Sidney Poitier. Uh, Sidney wasn't a star at that time. And Vic Morrow, who wasn't a star, Paul Mazursky, and several other people, uh, Anne Francis and Louis Calhoun, and introduced rock and roll uh, to uh, to really the movie uh, audiences. Uh, that was Rock Around the Clock with Bill Haley and the Comets. Yeah. And I, I won the role of Santini. So I was very, very excited and, uh, and very, very fortunate uh, to be so lucky at the beginning of my career. Yeah. Did rock and roll speak to you at the time, or did it feel like another world? Oh yes, of course. Yes, uh, yes, it did. And of course, that uh, they they said, uh, and I also saw it when the uh, when the movie uh, played in the theaters here in in the United States. Uh, it was, as soon as that music started, a lot of the young people got up from their seats and started dancing in the aisles. Yeah, it was uh, quite remarkable. Is there knowledge that you wish you could take back with you to earlier roles? Is it is a stuff that you that you learn? Oh, I think so. you know when you're when you're very very young. Uh, you uh, you think you're doing the right thing, and the, and the more experience you have, the more knowledge you have. So uh, yeah, I, I look back at it and say, gee, I could have done that better, or uh, I, I didn't approach it in a, in a certain way. And of course, my career was uh, had a variety. I mean, not only did I do like a movie like Blackboard Jungle, but I did comedies like No Time for Sergeants, and I did a biblical movie like The Greatest Story Ever Told. So uh, there was a, a huge variety, and, and actually that's where I worked with a lot of the English actors in uh, in the greatest story ever told: Donald Pleasance, uh, David McCollum, Gary Raymond, Michael Anderson Jr. And uh, every day at four o'clock, we we were on location. They would have their English four o'clock tea. So uh, we other uh, American actors decided that we'd have our four o'clock uh, coffee break. So they'd be over <laughs> at a little Quonset hut having their tea break. We'd be over at ours having our coffee break. <laughs> yeah. Um, after Blackball Jungle, your career gets interrupted, doesn't it? Because you get drafted and you go and serve Korea and Japan. Was that tough? for you was it was it dangerous uh, yeah i got drafted actually uh I, I my career had really taken off i was doing the red skeleton show and carrying half of uh, the the, the uh, show with him it was uh, live tv at that time and uh, i was up for all kinds of parts and uh the last movie that i did was no time for sergeants with andy griffith and uh, i uh, that's how i got when i got drafted and i was actually going to go to another movie but they uh, the uh, department of uh, our military said, no, you have to report uh, for your basic training at Fort Ord in Northern California. 
So um, I had to give that up. And, uh, yeah, I was gone for two years. I served, uh, as you pointed out, I served also at the Army Pictorial Center, which is the old Paramount Studios right. in, uh, in Astoria in New York. It's, uh, it became the, uh, uh, the Signal Corps headquarters, and we did training films there. And then I went on temporary duty to Fort Knox, Kentucky, and Fort Huachuca, Arizona, and then got shipped out to uh, Japan and, uh, and Korea. So when I came back, uh, a lot of my friends had uh, that had already served and didn't have to go in at the time I did, they all became stars, like Clint Eastwood and uh, uh, Craig Stevens, who I'd known he'd been at Warner Brothers, and uh, uh, Dennis Weaver, who I'd done a, a, a play with him, Stalag 17, he had gotten gun smoke, and I came back and uh, I tried to get started, and uh, uh, people didn't hire me. I couldn't even get an agent because they said, "What's your latest credit?" And I said, "Well, I was in the military, you know, yeah. wearing an army uniform." Uh, and then finally, uh, one of my friends, Carl Reiner, helped me out uh, and gave me a, a, a role on the Dick Van Dyke Show. Yeah. And then uh, what happened is my father passed away, and we didn't have any money. And uh, I was going to have to quit the business, and I went to say goodbye to Red Skelton. And uh, I had, uh, uh, Red had requested me from the State Department when uh, I was a soldier in Japan to help him when he entertained the troops in Korea. So he gave me, uh, I got VIP status, and we flew on a United Nations airplane, and we entertained the troops all the way up to the 38th parallel. And he had told me, he said, listen, when you get back, it may be tough, but you come and see me. So I went to see him at the CBS uh, studios here in California to say goodbye to him, and he said, no, you're not leaving. I'm putting you under personal contract. Here's some money. Send it home to your mom, and uh, you're working for me now. So I, I, did, uh, I worked for Red, and uh, he saved my career, actually. You changed your name when you came back. Yeah, I did. I, 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 you know, on my, uh, watching Blackboard Jungle and see, seeing my real name, I'm sure my mother wasn't happy about it. <laughs> oh, really? My name. Well, you know, it was, a, it, it was a Lebanese name, Jamil Farah. And everybody used to call me Shlamiel, you know. And then they uh, then they said, okay, I'll change it to Jamie. And then they called me Jaime. <laughs> so <laughs> couldn't win there. But, uh, yeah, I, I changed it just to make it easy for somebody to, uh, to understand, you know. Uh, uh, if you go back, you'll see how many actors changed your, their names uh, to make it simpler for people to... Remember who they are. What does your wife call you? Uh, she calls me Jamie. Does she? Yeah, and 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 and. Uh, uh, <laughs> but my wife was adopted, so she had many names. Uh, she she was uh, adopted. Uh, she went through about six families before somebody kept her. So <laughs> she's had all kinds of names. Uh, she still kept the, my my uh, uh, last name Farah F A R A H. But I had to change it uh, because of uh, 911. When I'd get on an airplane, you know, my driver's license would say uh, Jamil Farah, but everybody knew me as Jamie Farr, so illegally I had to change it to Jamie Farr. Oh, okay. I was wondering, has the, the sort of legacy of MASH been in any way frustrating for you? Because, and obviously it's such a, it must be such a huge part of your legacy, but... You, it is. But, but, I, I, I owe uh, quite a great deal to that because uh, it, some consider it, uh, TV Guide said it was probably the greatest TV show in the history of television. 
And of course, our rating was incredible. We had uh, there were I think 200 million people in the United States of America at that time, and 125 million were tuned into that final episode. And uh, next to the Super Bowls, those, those the last three Super Bowls are the only thing that has ever uh, done better. But of course, in America now we have over 300 million people, uh, and uh, we still you know have the highest rated TV show in the history of television as a uh, as a series. Yeah, and um, yeah, I, I owe uh, everything to uh, that that series, and I'm very proud of it, and proud of uh, uh, being a part of it, and working with such wonderful actors and actresses. Uh, they, uh, you know, they they were just just absolutely super. Everybody had the same thing in mind: uh, the play is the thing, and do the best possible job you can do. It must be strange though, because you're are you you're 85 now, aren't you? So you've you, MASH lasts 11 years, so you've had 74 years of your life not being in MASH. And so it must be, there must be a strange kind of... I'm going to be turning 86, July the 1st. Wow. So. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I've done so many game shows, talk shows, movies of the week, uh, uh, all uh, other series guesting on the thing. I've had a, a, a absolutely marvelous career, man. I can't complain about it. You know, everybody says, well, you can get typecast and and these things, but uh, I I don't mind that at all. Being typecast in a uh, show that was so absolutely uh, wonderfully written, wonderfully directed, and wonderfully acted in it, and I I've made a tremendous living in um, uh, you know in this business. Uh, this is my 67th year, I think, in show business. Yeah. So uh, and and also you know I'm doing these cameos, which are terrific. I even get the people. Uh, these cameos, uh, you know, they people pay uh, a little money for you to do a personalization of a video that sure. uh, we do. There's an app that we have, and uh, they're in anniversaries and holidays and that. And the response I get, and I've even gotten quite a few people from Great Britain and Australia and Canada, and uh, the, the, uh, beside the United States of America. And the fans are terrific because they'll say to you, you know, my father watched the show with his grandfather, and then I watched the show with my father. So uh, the uh, the lineage that we have is is remarkable. Yeah. Can you describe like an average week on set making mash? Can how how do we... well we we were supposed to shoot it in in uh, in in, in uh, actually three days. We had one day rehearsal, which was on a Monday. We'd come in and uh, we'd read the script. Everybody sat around the table, and we'd go page by page with the writers and the producer, Gene Reynolds, and uh, and, and Larry Galbart. And uh, they, they'd say, okay, would well, anybody have any uh, problems with anything that's going on? If they did, we'd all discuss it. And, and then uh, we, they, they'd say, okay, we can make that change and so forth. And then once the change was made, then you had to stay with the, uh, with the script and if you wanted to change anything when we got into the actual shooting of it, you had to call the front office to get there okay. But uh, we never made the four days because <laughs> we were a one-camera show. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we didn't have an audience or anything. And uh, so if we didn't get the, uh, that particular episode done in four days, uh, we'd bank a couple of the scenes that we didn't do and put it for a pickup day, and then we'd start the next show. Well, sometimes, uh, and, and this was very unusual because the studio and the network allowed us to do that because they knew the quality of the show and what we were doing. Because normally you wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't allow you to do this. So on a pickup day, we might have uh, four or five different uh, scenes that we're going to do for from four or five different shows. 
and you'd have to remember the uh, the, the plot line. You'd have to remember the wardrobe. You'd have to remember yeah. wh- where you were, you know, in this in the storyline. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, w- it was terrific. Uh, I I can't tell you how how wonderful uh, the network was and and the studio was uh, with us. They they the respect that. Uh, that they gave us. Yeah. Were you happy with the outcome for Klinger on the show? Yes, I, I, I thought that was a. I thought it was brilliant touch. Uh, uh, that the uh, the one that wanted to get out the most uh, wound up remaining <laughs> in Korea with a Korean bride. Yeah, I thought it was uh, super. The, the writers were terrific. I mean, the dialogue. If you still, if you watch it in reruns, the dialogue is just absolutely clever and and uh, wonderful. Uh, a lot of the shows today, they just do jokes, you know, but uh, uh, there's so many lines that you can remember from our, our series. People say, would you quote this line? They, uh, they, the fans do. They remember the show and they remember the lines from it. Yeah. So there's that one wonderful time when uh, uh, Colonel Blake, uh, McLean Stevenson, who we, we lost so early in our, in our lifetime, uh, has that line with uh, Hawkeye, Alan Aldo, and they're sitting there and and Hawkeye's upset with all the wounded and people coming in. And, and uh, Colonel Blake says to him, you know, there are certain rules in war. Rule number one is soldiers die. And rule number two is doctors can't change rule number one. I mean, that's, uh, that's just an absolute brilliant line. Yeah. It's interesting as well. I feel like the kind of morality of the show changed a bit as well. Like in the early seasons, sort of Hawkeye's treatment of women is pretty poor. And you've got um, characters that think nothing of cheating on their wives. Well, I think what they try to do is, is, is uh, you know, when you do a TV series, man, I, I, well, are you in the business besides just doing the podcast here? Are you in the business? I'm afraid I'm not, no. Oh, okay. Well, when you do a series... You know, you have the network to think about, the studio to think about, the writers, to th- the creator of the show to think about, and all these other people. And so you get a lot of uh, varied opinions. And, and when you're first starting out, everybody wants the show to be successful, okay? Yeah. So you listen to the powerhouses that are there, and you have to go along with that because they're the ones that are furnishing the, uh, the ability to have the show on the air. So I think what they tried to do is duplicate uh, what uh, was in the movie, you know, and, and supposedly in the in the book. I, I, didn't, I never read the book, but I, uh, I saw the movie, and uh, that was uh, that was part of it. But then as the the show continued and and, and went on, uh, some of the people said, like for example, uh, if if you're be, becoming one of the stars of a successful show, then you have more input in it, and you can say, hey, I, I'd like to do less of this and more of something else. So uh, that's how those things work out. Yeah, it certainly gets some kind of warmer, you know, you get um, sort of more sincere characters, like sort of, you know, BJ and and Potter and and Winchester. There's the show. Well, yeah, they said, well, Alan Alda was, uh, when he uh, took the role of Hawkeye, I mean, he was the first one cast and and said he didn't want to make it, uh, and again, I may be mentioning some names because you're so young, you may not know, but Abbott and Costello at the front, yeah. you know, he didn't want it to be that. He wanted to have some significance to the show. So, uh, and, and that's what uh, Larry Gelbart and Gene Reynolds wanted to do. And, uh, and I think, you know, they, they did it masterfully over the years. You saw some character changes in it, but I think in some instances it was for the uh, betterment of the series. 
for sure, yeah. Have you kept anything from set, or have you got any of the memorabilia? Because you've got like an action doll as well, haven't you? They brought out some really interesting merch. I had the action doll. I had my fuzzy pink slippers that I uh, <laughs> <laughs> flying over the compound. I got a few other things. I have so many things, uh, uh, Matt, that... Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm actually sitting in my study talking to you, and I look around here, and I have a mess in this place. I really got to get to it. As I said, that's 67 years. You know, I I did Doris Day's last movie with six years yeah. egg roll. I have stuff like that. I, I've got so many uh, uh, different things that uh, yeah, you know, and I work with so many wonderful actors in that, uh, and such a cross section. I worked worked with Charlton Heston a couple of times. You know, for a, for a guy who's a uh, supposedly known as a baggy pants comic, uh, I've had uh, the great experience of working with some of the finest actors in the business. I did the Danny Kaye show, and I worked with John Mills and Terry Thomas, and wow. uh, and and it was just fabulous. Yeah, I worked with Boris Karloff. I worked with Peter Lorre. I worked with uh, Errol Flynn, uh, George Raft. Uh, I, I have such a varied career. I am so fortunate. Yeah, I've been watching the Dick Van Dyke show recently, actually, and um, it's so great. And it feels like um, like an early... Well, that, I can thank Carl Reiner for that, because that was like the very first thing that anybody hired me. Carl, you know, had been in the Army, and he knew how difficult it was uh, getting started, getting back uh, again to the business. So he, uh, he hired me a snappy service, the, uh, the deli guy. Ironically enough, my wife is from Danville, Illinois, and lived right around the corner from Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> yeah, that Danville's got a population of 44,000 people, so it was ironic that here I am doing the show, and my wife uh, had been, uh, you know, lived in the same neighborhood with Dick Van Dyke and Jerry Van Dyke. Uh, Gene Hackman was from there, Donald O'Connor, and uh, uh, Bobby Short, the great uh, uh, singer. So they uh, out of that uh, little uh, little city there, they had a lot of famous people that came from it. Yeah, the show feels like an almost like an early version of Seinfeld or something, where it's almost like this meta series because it's about cause yeah. it's about making you know, a series. Uh, they, had done a, they had done a pilot uh, originally with Kyle Reiner playing the Dick Van Dyke character, and it didn't sell. So they, uh, uh, Carl Reiner, they said, okay, maybe we we should recast it. I'll just produce it and, and write the show. And, and that's uh, when they got uh, Dick Van Dyke involved in it. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know if you ever knew that MASH was going to be canceled after the first year. Yeah, we were on uh, Sunday night uh, opposite the wonderful world of Disney, and uh, we were number 57 out of 65 shows. And uh, William Paley, who was then the chairman of CBS, uh, said, hey, uh, uh, th th we're not doing very well with this show. I think we'll cancel it. And his wife, Babe Paley, said, you know, I like this show, Bill. Why don't you just put it in a different time spot? And he said, well, okay, we'll give that a try. So what he did is he created a Saturday night, night lineup with All in the Family, MASH, Mary Tyler Moore, the Bob Newhart Show, and the Carol Burnett Show, which became the greatest night in the history of television in the United States of America. And that's what saved our series. Yeah. And they moved it. And uh, uh, one time they moved us to Friday night. And uh, Friday night, the uh, NBC had had... Uh, had uh, Chico and the Man and uh, Sanford and Son or something. I don't. I remember that it was a powerhouse night for NBC. We would win our time spot on Friday night, but we wouldn't be in the top ten anymore. So the entire cast, with the producers and the writers, went to CBS. Fred Silverman was the head of the network at that time, and he he actually took a meeting with us, 
And we said, this is unfair. He said, well, you're, you're the crown jewel in the CBS, you know, uh, crown of this. And he said, yeah, but you got us on Friday night. He says, listen, if we didn't have you there, we could turn all of our lights off at CBS because that's the only stopper that we have against NBC. And we said, yeah, but that's not fair to us. You know, we, we wanted to, he says, okay, where did you want to be? So we said, okay, we wanted to be on Monday night uh, at the old I Love Lucy time. He says, okay. So he brought the chart out, and he moved us to uh, to Monday night. So we were there for a while, and then we were there on Tuesday night. Uh, uh, both of those nights were big for us, as well as the Saturday night lineup. Is there anything you'd still like to achieve creatively? Uh, mm, yeah, I think, but, you know, at my age, uh, it's, it's a little difficult. I mean, you know, we've always hoped that they would have a uh, a male version of the Golden Girls, which <laughs> they never have yet to come up with the uh, uh, with the premise that lasted or anything like that. But yeah, I wouldn't mind doing something like that. But I I certainly wouldn't want to carry a show at my age uh, now. Uh, I, I live in a two story house, and I get tired just going up the stairs. <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, you know, I don't do any theater anymore. I used to do a lot of theater, a lot of uh, live theater. I did uh, Guys and Dolls on Broadway, and I did Road Companies in Oklahoma, and and uh, uh, Will Rogers' Follies, and uh, South Pacific, and uh, you know, all kinds of shows. But I just don't uh, don't do it. Going on the road is is very difficult, and uh, you know, doing eight shows a week is quite difficult when you're in the yeah. theater. Yeah. Um, you've been married since 1963. Yeah, yeah. What are your key tips for a happy marriage? I uh, always try to remember the person that uh, you were dating. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you're dating, you're on the phone all the time, and you're talking to them and that, and then uh, after a while, you, you don't, you don't want to get used to somebody. You just think that they're, uh, they're just uh, convenient being around, so you just try to remember them. Listen, it, it ain't easy, believe me, and... and uh, uh, the spouses, both of it, you have to put up with uh, with all kinds of stuff. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, and particularly in this business, it's, uh, it's uh, and then raising children and uh, doing all of that. Uh, it's it's not easy. I, I've uh, you know seen some families that have done very very well that uh, were noteworthy, and then some of them have not. Uh, fortunately, we've been okay, uh, and and uh, we're very yeah. lucky. Well, I'm 15 years in, so um, it's going okay so far. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I love your fish and chips there. Are you a fish and chips man? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, well, when we were there, uh, and of course, you know, they did it in the newspaper and, and uh, everything, and uh, uh, we, as I said, stayed at the Savoy, and that was wonderful. And actually, I was still at uh, 20th Century Fox doing the show, uh, and, uh, and, but we were on hiatus, and so uh, uh, they had somebody from 20th Century Fox and, and Cubby Broccoli, who had done the uh, James Bond movies, took my wife and our two children out to a tavern for dinner. And it, what an experience that was. That was so nice. Yeah. And I had, uh, I, you know, worked with Roger Moore. I, uh, when I was at, uh, starting out in my career, I did a movie that he was a star in. I just had a, a tiny part in it. It was called Diane with uh, Lana Turner. Yeah. And then later on, of course, all the Cannonball Run movies that I had done. And uh, one of them, of course, uh, this is before uh, Roger Moore became uh, uh, James Bond. What a what a fine man he was. He was a lot of fun. We we enjoyed his company. Yeah. Did you get close to Dick Van Dyke 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I was, uh huh. I haven't seen him in a long time. Uh, he's, I think, in his in his nineties, and uh, you know that's another thing. Uh, as I said, I'm turning eighty six uh, July the first. Uh, Clint Eastwood, who I was in class with, uh, is, is turning ninety. Robert Wagner's turning ninety. Uh, I think Betty White is uh, is a hundred. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the ones that. Uh, Bob Newhart's still with us. Ed Asner is in his 90s. Uh, I talked to Ed. And Peter Marshall, I think, is 95. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm still in touch with Pete. But, yeah, you know, you watch uh, all of the episodes and you go, my gracious, uh, how fortunate that I'm still uh, still around and, and uh, that I have a few of my contemporaries that uh, are still with us. I've lost so many dear friends in in the business, uh, and uh, it's it's such a pleasure to see them in reruns and uh, and think back over the time that uh, we had together. Listen, it's a, it's been a fun trip. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking, mate. It's been so nice to talk to you. And listen, anybody interested in those cameos, tell them to uh, give it a give it a call. Uh, and as I said, I can't thank the people enough uh, their their kindness and friendliness and their, uh, their their respect they have for the show and for all of the actors that uh, were on the show. We, there's just five of us left. There's uh, Alan Alda, uh, Mike Farrell, Gary Berghoff, uh, Loretta Swinton, and me. Um, and we're still in touch. And they're, they're all wonderful people. Yeah. Well, listen, Matt, you stay well and, uh, and uh, make too. sure you stay healthy and wear your mask when it's important. <laughs> yeah, you too, mate. Look after yourself, all right? Okay, thank you, Matt. I do appreciate it. Take care. Bye. You bet. Bye-bye. That's our show. Thanks this episode to our guests whose opinions are their own. Thanks to Sharon Chevin and Robert Malcolm. Find me on Twitter at Signals Podcast and on Instagram at Sending Signals Podcast. Next episode, we have another movie special, this time about the making of Sometimes, Always, Never, starring Bill Nighy. Not to be confused with another movie with a similar title. I spoke to director Carl Hunter and screenwriter Frank Cottrell-Boyce, so watch a film if you can. See you soon.